This morning we'll be reading from Ruth chapter 2. If you want to follow along in a pew Bible, it begins on page 222. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they finish all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. 
Uh, many of you know that last week I had the really sweet opportunity of meeting up with some of our missionaries on their home turf. Uh, I can't wait to tell you all about it. Uh, it was a really worthy trip, a worthy visit with some really worthy saints. Uh, I'll give an update at our next family meeting, so next Sunday night, show up and I'll tell you all about it. Sweet time. Of course, though, while I was there, I took a bunch of pictures. Uh, but maybe one of the most interesting pictures that I snapped was of my new Apple Watch. Um, this might seem like a strange highlight for a trip to the Mediterranean. We were on the island of Cyprus and in the country of Jordan, which interestingly, Jordan is ancient Moab, where Ruth was from. Uh, so we were hanging out in Ruth, Ruth's old stomping grounds uh, last week. Uh, but there's got to be a better picture to take than my freckled forearm with a watch on it, right? Well, yes, but here's the catch, and here's why it was interesting. I have my watch set to tell me all of the normal things, right? Like the time and the date uh, and then the, the temperature. But it also tells me a little bit more about the weather, whether there's fog or rain or clouds or sunshine or whatever. Well, when we were in the country of Jordan, I saw a weather description that I have never seen before on my watch. Here it is. I don't know if you can see it closely enough. Can I? Yeah. Dust was the weather description that I had never seen before. One of the TWR Trans World Radio, one of the TWR employees, a lifetime citizen of Jordan, let us know that they had just experienced one of the worst sandstorms in, in decades, hence the description on my watch. Well, out in the distance for miles and miles all around us, all we could see was a dense brown fog of dust. Well, on this particular day, one of our missionary friends was showing us Mount Nebo. This is, if you remember, where Moses looked out over the promised land uh, before God took him home and showed Moses where he was not allowed to enter uh, on Mount Nebo. I sincerely hope that there was not a sandstorm the day before Moses got up on that mountain because we couldn't see anything not any part of the promised land. It was a big cloud of dust and a big disappointment to not be able to see the promised land like Moses would have been able to see the promised land in that day, that same spot, many, many, many years before. But I think my little experience there is a little parable for us here today in Ruth 2. Though we couldn't see the promised land, it was there hidden behind a veil of dust. It reminded me of a children's book I read recently, called The Moon is Always Round. Just like the moon is always there, even if you can't see it in the day or if it's hidden behind a cloud at night, it is always there. Whether it's a waxing crescent or a waning crescent or somewhere in between or a total eclipse, appearances can be deceiving, right? The moon is always there and it's always round no matter what shape it takes in the sky. At first, God's kindness is really hard to detect in this unlikely, unexpected love story of Ruth. But as we'll begin to see today in the second chapter of this story, for Ruth and for us, God's kindness is always at work even when we can't see it, even when we don't believe it. Naomi was a bitter old woman who thoroughly believed that God was done with her, done being good to her. As I stood atop Mount Nebo, I couldn't see a thing in the distance. But remnants of God's promise were still there. Even though I couldn't see them, they were just shrouded in dust. Almost impossible to see, but it was still there. 
And the, the, the message of Ruth 2 is just that. We can trust the hidden kindness of God. We can trust the hidden kindness of God. Chapter 1's emphasis, which Kevin covered last week, was more on the hiddenness than on the kindness, if you recall. I've heard so many wonderful reviews of that sermon. I'm looking forward to listening to it myself. But let's, let's recap briefly where we're at in the story right now with Ruth. So in chapter 1, the Lord led this family into a bitter calamity. There was a famine in Judah, in, in Israel, and thus a move only about 50 miles away, probably across the Dead Sea, to Moab uh, for Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilion. I don't know if that's how you say it. I got as close as I could. Sometime after their arrival, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, and her two sons marry foreign pagan wives. Years later, Naomi experiences the death of her two sons. We find out in chapter 1 that neither of the sons produced any children before they died. So she's left with two daughters-in-law. Her life is just a series of tragic calamities. She's empty. She left Israel with no food. Now she's returning with no husband and no sons. Her belly is empty and her soul has just got to be hollow. Where are you, God? It's got to be the theme of her song. Nothing but nothing to look forward to except for eking out a meager existence with the one daughter-in-law who decided to come with her, Ruth. All, can she, all, all, all she can see is dust and no promise. Clouds, no moon. Naomi has hit the bottom. If only Naomi was like my brother-in-law, who, I kid you not, when he picks up a novel, he reads the last chapter first to decide whether or not he wants to read the entire book. Oh, if Naomi had only had that chance of reading the book of Ruth from back to front, it would have changed her depression in a moment. I think this little unlikely, unexpected love story is designed to be read through the lens of its final verses. What if Naomi could have known this in the midst of her depression? You don't have to flip to the end. I'll put it up on screen for you. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What if she could have known in those depressed moments, even in that very moment with no sons left, no grandchildren to speak of, that she was the great, great, great grandmother of King David, the second greatest king in Israel's storied history. But of course, like all of us, we can't know the last chapter in the middle of the book. Still, knowing how the story ends ought to give us a sense that nothing insignificant happens in this unlikely, unexpected love story. Nothing insignificant. No detail is too small. And the takeaway for us will be similar. Nothing insignificant happens in your story. No detail is a throwaway or insignificant. Ruth's story is proof of that old hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense from what you see on the outside, 
but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In chapter 1, Naomi was shattered by that frowning providence. But in chapter 2, we begin to see the faint hints of a silhouette of God's smiling face. In chapter 1, the book of we find out that the book of Ruth is certainly about darkness and brokenness and the hidden kindness of God. Uh, in the same way, we will not know the eventual extraordinary outcomes of our very ordinary choices. But in the end, when we look back through the last chapter of our lives, we will find the fingerprints of God's favor all over our most ordinary moments where we decide to work where we enjoy our community at the park or wherever, the painful or or the the neighborhood that we live in, or the more painful things like a, a job loss or a dreaded diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. God's fingerprints will be over the mundane and ordinary moments and even the most painful moments. This is an unlikely, unexpected love story. In chapter two, we begin to see some rays of hope peeking out from behind the clouds. Barely! But they're there. You can see them. And these rays of hope show up in the form of favor shown from a wealthy man to Ruth. God's favor shows up in three distinct ways in this chapter. You can find them in verse 2, verse 10, and verse 13. That word favor is in each of those verses. And it's the thread that kind of ties this whole chapter together. And we're going to trace those threads this morning. Look at that first instance in in verse 2. Ruth says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Her search for favor ends in a surprising source of favor. Naomi's husband's relative, Naomi's husband's relative, if you're tracking with me, walks onto the stage of this unexpected, unlikely love story. His name is Boaz. Verse 1 says that Boaz is a worthy man. Now, it's not obvious off the bat here when you just read about him there, but this is an incredibly unlikely statement to be made by the author. Boaz, a worthy man? Hardly, if you consider the stock that he comes from. See, we find out the paternal side of Boaz's uh, family origins at the end of the book of Ruth. But it probably won't seem obvious to any of us what's going on here at first glance. This is about to be genealogies for the win, y'all, okay? Look at uh, chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. I mean, it took me 10 seconds to read that, and some of y'all are nodding off already. But this is why genealogies are not a waste, When your eyes glaze over them, you might just be missing the hidden kindness of God. Look what detail Matthew, the gospel writer, who comes onto the scene a thousand years later, look what detail he adds to the same genealogy. It lists all the same peeps, which I won't make you go through again, but then he adds this little detail that should be like a little bing light bulb for you. Matthew 1.5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Do you remember Rahab from the book of Joshua? She was not a clean-cut woman. She was a godless prostitute in the city of Jericho. She sold her body on the streets of Jericho. 
But the author calls this sinful woman's son a worthy man. This title worthy could be translated as man of valor, like it is in 1 Samuel 16, or a man of wealth, like it is in 1 Samuel 9. But it can't only mean that he was wealthy, because Ruth gets the same description in chapter 3, verse 11. And we know for sure that Ruth was not a wealthy woman. So we learn that this is a broad word describing Boaz's moral wealth and material worth. Let's go with moral worth and material wealth. Moral worth and material wealth. Even better than his worth, his worthiness, though I think, is his very sort of natural relationship with the Lord. You can see it just coming out in his like casual conversation with his employees at work. See that little incidental detail down in verse 4? Check it out. Boaz walks up to his employees, and how does he greet them? Eh, morning, guys. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. The son of a prostitute is a God-fearing man. What an unlikely, unexpected outcome. Truly a surprising answer to Ruth's pursuit of favor. The reality of God had saturated Boaz down into his bones, down into the very routine rhythms of his life, like when he showed up for work. I wonder if God ever invades your Mondays or if God is sort of like reserved for this two-hour time slot on Sundays. This book and the gospel, the good news of this book, and the people here, they're not just here for your Sundays. They're here for your Monday to Saturdays. Perhaps you won't say these precise words when you go into work tomorrow. The Lord be with you all. Maybe that would be a little too awkward in your setting right now. But I wonder if there are some creative ways to integrate faith into your work, like we see on display in Boaz here. I don't know. Give us some thought. But, but Ruth's description is really fascinating here, too. First, the author reminds us that she was a Moabite, a Moabitess. Later in the story, she's described as a worthy woman. I already mentioned that. Just like Boaz was worthy. So we've got worthy Boaz, and now we've got worthy Ruth. Seems like a great combination here. But like Boaz, Ruth's family line is super shady too. Moabite and worthy do not belong together as descriptors of the same person. Here we find that Ruth is an unlikely recipient of favor. So the Moabite clan, the Moabite family, started in a cave with a drunk man named Lot. And get this. His daughter. I'll let you do the math. Ruth's ancestors were incestuous ancestors. They were outcasts and unclean from the Jewish perspective. But here we find Ruth being lifted up as a worthy example. Our God makes beauty from ashes. You should know. I should know. Beauty from ashes. He chooses to use broken things not whole things like we all want to pretend to be. This is why we have on repeat around here this idea that it's okay to not be okay. By that, we don't mean it's just okay to live in your sin and be content with it and just shrug it off. No, we mean that God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He wants to meet us right where we are and lead us into the light of his son. Don't ever believe the lie that the sin of your past means that there is no hope for your future. Have you been unfaithful to a spouse? 
had an abortion, stolen from your employer. You might have a history like Rahab, but look how God used her. Oh man, your usefulness is not dependent on how shiny your past is, praise God, but on how good and powerful your God is. And what do you know? The woman with a past that would make most of us squirm, Ruth, is one of two books in the Bible named after women, and it is the only Old Testament book named after a non-Jew. Ruth's ancestry is so suspect, or as my kids would say, so sus. Her, her ancestry is so sus, and yet she's an object of honor here. There's something else really interesting about Ruth here. I'm sorry that he's not in here to enjoy this, but I, I was giving Kevin McFadden a lesson in ancient Hebrew this past week to help him understand the story of Ruth better. <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, thank you. If you didn't hear Randy, he just said, duh. Uh, uh, he was helping me with the Hebrew in the book of Ruth. Here's how rusty uh, my Hebrew is. I brought up my Hebrew Old Testament with me today. Um, I, I couldn't even find Ruth in my Hebrew <laughs> Bible. Now, part of that is because Hebrew reads right to left, and so uh, this is the front. The back is where Genesis is, okay? So cut me a little bit of slack. It goes Genesis all the way to Malachi, kind of the opposite way that you might think it would. But do you know why else? It's because in our Bibles today, like the one you have in your lap or on your phone, uh, Ruth falls after the book of Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth falls directly after Proverbs 31. It doesn't fall after Judges. Proverbs 31, which you might remember, is a description of an ideal, godly woman. This was an intentional placement by the Hebrew editors who put Genesis at the back and Malachi at the front. We were talking about this in C Group last week, and Steph Mitchell mentioned how placing Ruth directly after Proverbs 31 would have been like animating the Proverbs 31 woman and demonstrating what she could look like in real life. The scriptures honor this woman with a sordid past because she has a special savior. So that's a little bit about the ancestry and the character of Boaz and Ruth. But let's, let's get back to the story here and we'll observe Ruth's gritty pursuit of favor. A gritty pursuit of favor. So after arriving back in Bethlehem, Ruth immediately takes action. Despite what must be her own heavy grief and insecurities about being an immigrant, Right? She's completely from another uh, set of people, another clan. She is an immigrant with a bunch of people who would likely despise her. She has not forgotten about her vow to Naomi to cling to her, and to care for her. So in verse 2, she heads out to glean grain from the field. And it says this, in whose sight I shall find favor. Ruth is gritty in her pursuit of favor. Look at verse 7 with me. The workers describe her like this. So she came, they say, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Look, Ruth was not looking for a handout. She came ready to work. She knew that faith in God wasn't the same as sitting around waiting for God to do something. Favor was a gift, yes, but it was a gift worth pursuing. If you're in a holding pattern right now yourself, waiting for God to lightning strike your world with things to do and ways to serve and areas to work. 
it's probably time to get the move on. If you don't know where to start or how to serve or where to work, stop by the office one day and we'll chat. Maybe we can come up with some ideas together. Ruth was severely disadvantaged in her society. Woman, widow, childless, foreign, unclean, poor. If intersectionality was a thing back then, she would have made it all the way through the intersection. She was the most underprivileged person that you can imagine in that society. But against all those odds, she pursued and grittily worked toward favor and didn't wait for it to plop into her lap. There was no sense of entitlement in Ruth. So she sets out to glean some of this leftover grain. This was ancient Israel's welfare system. A way for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover grain from the fields in their community. It's the way God set it up. It was his commanded way of caring for these people that lived on the margins, that had barely anything. In God's plan, though, the system did require effort and work on the part of the poor. Ruth certainly does not go to the fields with the sense of entitlement, but with humility. So you can imagine Ruth, in your mind's eye, setting out to do this on Naomi's behalf was a very public display of shame and poverty. This was a a very shame-based culture. And it probably would have fueled shame in the heart of the gleamer, the, the gleaner. Like, like you might feel if you were forced to scavenge through the dumpster behind McDonald's for leftovers of a Big Mac and some crusty old fries in order to survive. You might feel a little shame in that. Ruth, in her kindness, is really taking it on the chin here for Naomi. She could have gone back to her parents. The text says that. She didn't. She clung. Ruth is kind. Naomi could have come back to Bethlehem completely alone, but God gave her a ray of hope in the person of Ruth. I hope we realize how vital kindness is. Even among our own here in the church, the spirit through the author of Ruth is holding up Ruth's example as one for us to aspire to. We should be aware, even in our own church family, of the more vulnerable among us. Be kind to them. So pray for the ministry of our deacons. Pray for Trevor as he endeavors to show mercy where it is most needed. Pray for the endeavors of Trevor. Uh, it's, he's not even here to appreciate that today. It is awesome that there's already movement on this in our, in our little church family. Elizabeth and Ernie committed to loving the marginalized in our prisons. Rachel Malelli and Sue Henderson committed to loving single moms and unborn babies and born babies. Perhaps the Lord might even move in you this morning to show some courageous, gritty kindness alongside of Elizabeth or Ernie or Rachel or Sue. Kindness is an incredibly powerful virtue that sort of rolls off our tongue probably a little bit too easily. It's just for the kids, right? We need it, church. Are you kind? But Ruth wasn't just entering into shame on Naomi's behalf. She's actually entering into danger. This was going to be the dreaded day when it became clear and it would finally dawn on Ruth why Naomi so persistently tried to persuade her to go home. Ruth's decision to venture out into these fields without family, without friend, in this culture would have been absolutely precarious for her. Both Naomi and Boaz underscore the danger for her. 
For example, uh, look in verse 9. To protect Ruth from abuse or injury in his field, Boaz instructs his male harvesters. He says, do not lay a hand on her. We might think that's a given, right? Apparently it wasn't. Don't lay a hand on her. That's a terrifying reality to step into for anyone, let alone a vulnerable, newly arrived immigrant who does not look the part of the culture. She's entering into danger in her kind vow to Naomi. In verse 22, at the end of the day, when Ruth returns home safely, a relieved Naomi urges her to continue gleaning in this particular field. Look at it, verse 22. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Man. She's up against some pretty ominous threats here. Not to mention Boaz himself. Remember, we as the readers, we know that Boaz is a worthy man. We've seen that in verse 1. But Ruth doesn't. It's not like there was a sign above his field with what we read about in verse 1. This here is Boaz's field. He is a worthy man. It didn't say that. She didn't know he was a worthy man. In this moment, I'm sure Ruth can't even see past the veil of dust. She doesn't even know what she's looking at. When she walks up to Boaz, she has no idea that she is staring at the hidden kindness of God. Staring straight into the smile that's hiding behind his providence. I wonder how often in our lives, in the ordinary moments of our lives, we may be staring into the hidden kindness of God without even realizing it. May God wake us up to this reality. May we live in this reality. Well, Boaz looks across the field and he sees her and he asks his employees about her. Hey, who's, who's that lady over there? And apparently Ruth's kind-hearted reputation preceded her. He's heard of her before. And so he offers a generous, he offers some generous favor here. So he approaches her. And the way he addresses her probably tells us a little bit about their age gap. He calls her my daughter there in verse 8. The same way Naomi addresses her. You can, so you can imagine the tender eyes of a father doing his best to care for his girl. That's what's happening here. There's no romance yet. Remember, this is an unexpected and unlikely love story after all. I think Boaz, though, is demonstrating his worthiness right here and his generosity towards this marginalized outsider who is a descendant of incest. Her race and her class did not prevent Boaz from showing compassion. Last week in C Group, Jonathan Nitz pointed out for us the probability that, dude, two quotes from C Group. If you all have been skipping out on C Group, get to C Group. It was a really sweet conversation for us this last week. A very profitable time. If you're not in one and would like to join one, see me or see John. We'd be happy to hook you up with that. Quoting Jonathan Nitz, he was pointing out the, the probability that at least part of what motivates Boaz to reach out to this outsider here is likely the fact that his mother, Rahab, was an outcast in Jericho who was brought into the fold by God and his people. She was a pagan prostitute, and yet upon repentance and faith, faith was welcomed gladly into the family. No scarlet A, just full acceptance. Such is the story for all of us in here who are in Christ. Outsiders made insiders by the blood of Jesus. No scarlet A's, just scarlet robes, cleansed by Jesus, washed in his blood. Gracious acceptance undeserved favor. Ruth's story 
is every Christian's story. But for the favor of Boaz, Ruth and Noemi, Noemi, Naomi would have been hopeless. But for the grace of God, we would all be hopeless. But look at the core of what motivates Boaz to show this mercy. Ruth asks the question herself in verse 10. She says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answers in verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz's kindness was a response to Ruth's kindness. This past week, I was reading a book that is aimed at the heart of pastors, uh, but I, I think it could apply to all of us today. Here's what the author said. One day, when your ministry comes to an end, you may find it was the little kindnesses that meant even more to your congregation than all your great sermons. All your great sermons is obviously an exaggeration, but the point holds true, right? All of your great work will probably pale in comparison to the little kindnesses you showed throughout your days. The lasting legacy of Ruth and Boaz are more than anything, their ordinary kindnesses. And that kindness cracked open the door to an unlikely, unexpected love story. Kindness for Ruth was just leaving Naomi for the day to get some food. Kindness for Boaz was giving up just a little bit of his profit margin. Neither of these are huge details, huge deals really. But at the end of the day, these little kindnesses are being read by millions of Christians and non-Christians every day, thousands of years later. Zach Eswine, one of my favorite authors, says this, Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Jesus. So I wonder, are you a kind person, ordinary kindness with your spouse, your kids, the people here in the church? You never know what kind of eternal fruit your little kindness might bear. So Boaz issues a series of orders to guarantee Ruth's success. You're going to have to sort of tick through the verses here with me. But in verse 9, he offers her protection. Again in verse 9, he offers her supplies and water, get this, that are prepared by others. See, normally the foreigners would be the ones that are getting the water for the Israelites, and the women would draw it for the men. But that gets flipped upside down here. Later, he invites her to dinner, first date, right? And then in verse 14, she has to get a doggy bag because she has leftovers, you know, to take home, to fill up empty, bitter, hungry Naomi, who's still probably at home fretting over Ruth's safety. And then in verse 17, Boaz lets her glean, not just the leftovers, but fully pre-assembled bundles of grain. That ephah of barley there in 17, she gets, would be the equivalent of about two weeks' worth of food, 30 pounds. Then we find out at the end of the chapter that he provides seven more weeks of grain throughout the entirety of the barley harvest, probably May and June. Boaz was a chivalrous, generous man who offered favor to someone who had done nothing to earn favor. Look how Ruth responds to this. A proper response to favor. Verse 10. What does she do? She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? 
She cannot believe it, that she has received such outrageous favor. Listen, proud people don't feel amazed at being treated with undeserved favor. They shrug it off. They're indifferent to it, nonplussed by it. Does your response to God's favor toward you ever mimic what Ruth does here? Does it look like Ruth's? How do you sing on Sundays? Would anyone know by hearing you or watching you that you are amazed that an outsider is being treated like an insider because of the blood of Jesus? The text doesn't touch on this, but let your imagination wander back to uh, Naomi. Hungry, lonely, empty, depressed, angry at God, worried that Ruth was going to come back empty or worse, hurt by some unruly man. After a miserable day of anxiety, Ruth pops through the front door and Naomi can't even see her face because the grain is filled up so high in her arms. Naomi's worst fears aren't realized. Ruth doesn't arrive wounded, but winning. Oh, the God-centered, God-fueled old lady jig that Naomi must have danced in that moment. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But listen, we're all living real life here. Maybe that joyful turn has not happened to you yet. Maybe the weather app of your current chapter still just says dust. Perhaps the thick dust still obscures God's hidden kindness. Do not lose hope, my friend. Sometimes there really is a really long wait for favor. It's not like it was a quick and easy fix for Naomi. She'd waited at least a decade, probably more. She'd lost it all. She'd become utterly empty. But here we find God filling her back up. I think an implicit lesson here is to be patient. As much as we may not want it, God's timing is not ours. We want to accelerate our way through the pain. That's natural. It's human. But patience grows when we remember that we don't need to see how the story ends or when our seeds will flower. The inventor of time is never behind schedule. And in that glorious truth, we all find rest and the grace we need to face anything while we are waiting on God to come through. Naomi had to wait 10 years to see the sun poke through the clouds. God's timing was perfect, even if inconvenient. This leads to our final thread of favor, an unexpected future of favor, an unexpected future of favor. We haven't even touched on yet what I think <clears throat> may be the most important phrase in the whole chapter. It comes to us way back up in verse 3. Look at it with me, if you will. It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is not an insignificant word choice in the least. She happened to end up in Boaz's field. Literally, the Hebrew reads, and her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field of Boaz. 
we might say, as luck would have it, she landed in Boaz's field. The narrator is being a little cheeky here with us. He knows it's not by chance because he's been up to Nebo on a clear day and seen the whole promised land unobscured by dust. He's read Ruth from back to front. He knows Israel's greatest king comes as a result of this chance upon a chance to land in this field. Proverbs 16:9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can imagine the night before Ruth goes out to glean, she and Naomi sit down around the fire or candlelight, and they plot out the next day. When she left the door, would she turn right or would she turn left? Where were the fields? How would she decide which field to choose? There were more than one. Ruth left the house in search of good food, but returned with God's favor. Ultimately, the favor that Ruth received from her redeemer, Boaz, would culminate into the favor that we receive from our redeemer, Jesus. More on that a little bit later this morning and then definitely next week. See, I already mentioned that Ruth was King David's grandma. And perhaps you remember that from David's line would come the redeemer of humanity. So even better than being David's grandma, Ruth was Jesus's great, 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 however many greats are supposed to be there, grandma. I didn't count them. But think, think of all the dominoes that had to fall perfectly. If Rahab wouldn't have been converted and preserved back in Jericho, if there was no famine to drive Naomi and her family to Moab, where Ruth lived, if Naomi's husband or Ruth's husband would have lived and kept them in Moab, presumably, and if Ruth would have borne children prior to moving back to Bethlehem, if Ruth would have wandered into a different field than Boaz's, which she happened upon, that barley field right there in verse 22 was the exact and the only barley field on the planet that could change her whole universe and change our whole universe. The only one. And she chanced upon a chance to land in that one. Unless all those dominoes fall just right, then we don't get the line of Jesus. Do you see? I took a screenshot of my Bible. Genealogy of Jesus. You see Boaz and Ruth there in the middle, and then you see Jesus there at the end. In Ruth's choice of which field to glean in, our redemption was hanging in the balance. This story is expertly crafted to teach us that God is not in heaven with his fingers crossed, hoping against hope that things will turn out just like he planned. No, he is present and he is powerful. He is active, even if imperceptibly so. Listen, if you're struggling over whether or not this book is legit the word of God, can I trust this thing? A text written thousands of years ago? It is the word of God, and it proves itself over and over and over again with these incredible connections that span decades and centuries and even millennia. There's some hard words in here, but they come from a good God. The same kind of hidden kindness in Ruth's life is at work in your life too. You never know what God is up to in your life, friend. Like Naomi, we face doubts constantly. Is God real? If he is, is he present? If he's present, why isn't he acting? 
Ruth's story destroys the notion that God has to work in extraordinary ways to validate his work in our very ordinary lives. He shows up in the ordinary events in Ruth. Nobody sits back when Ruth gets hungry and heads out to scavenge some grain and says, huh, I wonder what God is up to right now. Nobody says that. She's just getting some food. In Ruth, we learn that there is no happenstance, only providence. In the late 1800s, uh, George MacDonald penned a book called The Princess and the Goblin. In this book, the princess Irene must leave the safety of her castle to descend into the goblin caves to find her friend. His name was Curdie. And the only way that she can find her way through the dark, twisted caverns of the goblin caves is by holding on to this invisible thread that a mysterious old woman gave to her. She can't see it. She can only feel it. And by always grasping that thread, wherever it seemed to lead, even when the way was difficult, Irene found her way out of the dark caverns and into the light of the real world. I'm known for spoilers. The thread worked, okay? She, she made it out of the caverns. But as Christians who follow God in a godless world, it does take effort to keep our fingers on the thread. But we must. By faith, we must. By God's spirit and through his word and with the help of his people, we've got to keep our fingers on the thread. Reminding ourselves that he remains present with us even if sometimes it appears that he is absent from us. When a loved one passes, when money is scarce, when you lose a job, when you can't see the next step. You might be going down into the goblin hole again right now in your life's story. But hold on to the thread of God's providence. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And it is only that thread of truth that can sustain you and ultimately lead you home. The threat of God's kindness towards you might be hidden just like it appeared to Naomi. But its invisibility did not mean that the thread wasn't really there. It was all along. There are no chance encounters in your life. God has not left any one of us to a cosmic game of chance. He hasn't left our destinies to a roll of the dice. He's connecting the dots whether you know it or not in the moment. Do you have this confidence this morning, Christian, that even the most difficult events of your life are orchestrated by a skilled and gracious conductor? I had a mentor tell me one time many years ago when I was limping my own way through a particularly dark season for my soul. He said, Josh, sometimes God removes the feeling of his presence so that we can rest in the fact of his presence. I think experientially, at least, he was exactly right. When the feeling is gone, when we're having trouble seeing God's kindness through the dust-ups of our lives, we can know that he is powerfully present, even if he is apparently absent. So if you right now, if you're in a quiet season with the Lord, you can't see him, you can't hear him, you can't sense him, if his presence seems far from you, can I encourage you to run to the book? Not just the book of Ruth, but this entire thing. He is powerfully present here always, even when he is apparently absent in your life. He's not actually absent, just apparently so. 
I think it was John Piper who said that God is always doing 10 million things in your life all at once, and you might be aware of three. Honestly, Ruth's life probably ended up pretty full and happy. Naomi too. But she had no idea in the midst of her darkness what chapter in which story that her life was writing. She was the great, 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 great grandmother of the redeemer of the world. I mean, Naomi was complaining to Jesus' great, great, great grandma. She didn't even understand the royalties she was sitting with. You do not know what chapter in his story, in your story, that he is writing with your story right now. But you'd be foolish not to believe how careful God is to have purpose in all of his actions, whether we can see it through the dust or not, whether his kindness remains hidden or not. Three points of application, and we'll close. First, we all, like Naomi and Ruth, have a problem that we cannot solve on our own. For Ruth, all she needed was need. You too. All you need is need. Come to Jesus, poor and needy, and he will meet you, free you, and provide for you. Your sin will be paid for. You've offended God. We all have. We've all gone our own way, but the situation is not hopeless. We've already rehearsed this. Ruth is an unclean Moabitess, but in the lineage of Christ. Boaz, the son of a prostitute, in the lineage of Christ. God redeems and uses broken things. God, in his amazing love, planned to have perverts and prostitutes in his family line. Far from distancing himself from them, he humbled himself to be born into their family. God's not a stiff-arming God. He's near to the broken. Second, coincidence is actually providence in street clothes. God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. Third and finally, God's will for your life is being revealed day by day through the unfolding of ordinary events. If you've wondered what God's will is for your life today, you're sitting in it. I think we're tempted to believe that God has left us alone. But Ruth here is, Ruth is here to rouse us from this unbelief. God's presence at times may be veiled, but it is there. Open up your Bible every day and grab hold of that invisible thread. Ask yourself, why does God have me where I am, involved where I am in the events of this day? How can I do intentional spiritual good to those around me today? God's will for your life is being revealed day by day through the unfolding of ordinary events. Will you pray with me? Lord, thanks for this beautiful, wonderful story of Ruth. Grateful that you had it preserved all these years. Thank you that Ruth happened to get into the field of Boaz and all the events that spun out to this very moment here in this room. If Ruth would have gone into the next door neighboring field, we would not be sitting here today. What an amazing thought. You're a good and gracious God. Amen.